morning harvest. How are we doing this morning? Good. I, my name is Chris. I'm one of the pastors here. And this morning I had the wonderful opportunity to enjoy a brilliantly brewed cup of Ethiopian Guji pour over along with zero food. So I am a little bit shaky and wired this morning along with that worship. I'm, I am pumped to bring you God's word this morning, okay? Good. Some of you are excited with me. Um, we're starting a new series today on the parables of Jesus. And what's interesting about the parables of Jesus is typically after Jesus will tell a parable, he'll use this phrase. He'll say, he who has ears, let him hear. And I would love you for you to turn in your Bibles to Matthew 13 this morning as we dive into Jesus' first parable. If you need a Bible, we have ushers walking up and down the aisles right now. Just raise your hand. We'd love for you to have God's word in your hand this morning. And if you don't own a Bible, that is our gift to you. Take it home, use it, enjoy it. But when Jesus says, he who has ears, let him hear, you know there's a difference between hearing and listening, right? There's a very clear difference between hearing and listening. And one of my favorite uh, stories of all time uh, actually happened a couple months ago when my wife and I went out of town and we dropped our kids off at the Tarnos. And the Tarnos, if you don't know them, they're uh, a wonderful family in our church. Paul is an elder. And Beth and Paul and their kids and the two kids that they have in the home right now are Sophie and Mia. And so Gabe at that time was in the throes of kind of still learning how to potty train and he was pretty much there, but he, he told one of the girls, hey, I have to go potty, I have to go potty. So Gabe, they bring him to the bathroom and they sit him on the john and they're waiting for him to finish and he says something. He says uh, what Sophie recalls is, I want fly jeans. I want fly jeans. And you know, like any typical two and a half year old, they have their own language. And the only people able to decipher that language usually are the parents or maybe the siblings. And so Sophie is like, fly jeans? What? Fly jeans? You want fly jeans? And he's like, I want fly jeans. And she's like, I have no idea what you're saying. Mia, come in here. And so they get Mia to come in. And they're like, okay, say it again, Gabe. Say it again. I want fly jeans. She's like, I've got nothing. I don't know what, what he's saying. And so they're like, mom. So Beth comes in, and Gabe, meanwhile, is just sitting on the john, half naked, saying, I want fly jeans. And you've got three people in the room trying to figure out what he's saying. And then they're like, we just can't figure it out. They got Paul in the, in the bathroom now. Four people, plus Gabe, half naked on the toilet, trying to go potty, saying, saying something, fly jeans, something fly jeans. And so finally, Evelyn, Gabe's sister, walks by. And they're like, Evie, do you know what Gabe is saying? And, and she's like, Gabe, say it again. He's like, I want fly jeans. She's like, oh, he would like a little privacy. <laughs> I mean, that, it just, as every second was going by in that situation, Gabe, I'm sure, was like, this is getting so much worse. All I want is a little privacy. And what's interesting is, like, it wasn't that they weren't hearing what he was saying but they weren't actually hearing what he was saying, right? He was saying something and they heard it with their ears, but there's a difference between hearing and listening. And as we get into the parables, that's what Jesus does at the end of the parables. He's like, are you listening? That's the big question for this morning. He'll go through what he says and he's like, are you, are you listening? He who has ears, let him hear. Are you, are you actually hearing what I'm saying 
Not just hearing, not just understanding, but listening, taking heed, calculating the ramifications of the content that's entering into the audible cortex of your brain, actually listening. And as we dive into this new series on parables, I would want to challenge all of us as we go through this series to question every time we hear from God's word. Am I hearing right now or am I listening to God's word? Jesus makes this distinction, and we'll see it is actually the reason why he does decide to speak in parables, want to distinguish those who have hearts of stone versus those who have hearts of flesh. He separates, he puts a line in the sand of those who are followers and those who are spectators, those who bear spiritual fruit and those who are fruitless. There are many people, even present in this room today, who may hear but do not listen, and that should sober all of us. In Matthew 13, Jesus kicks off his first parable. What's interesting is up until this moment, Jesus never spoke in parables. In fact, a lot of his ministry, most of his ministry up until now, there was no parables at all. It was healings and miracles and him declaring, hey, the kingdom of God is at hand. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent, believe. And so we need to figure out why is he deciding in this moment in Matthew 13 to speak in parables and what we have to do is look back. Just before this, we see the pinnacle moment in Jesus' ministry that where he drew the line in the sand, so to speak, when Jesus is raising the pressure of the tension between himself and the religious elite, the Pharisees and the scribes. And right before this parable in uh, chapter 12, you can turn back there if you'd like. I'm going to have it on the screen. But there's the story of Jesus healing a demon-possessed man who was also blind and mute. And what's interesting is that he not only exercised the demon out of this man, but he healed him of his physical ailments as well. So Jesus is saying, I'm not only Lord of the physical realm, I am Lord of the spiritual realm. He healed them both physically and spiritually. And what the Pharisees did, and they didn't do this out loud, they were murmuring to each other, and they said, well, he's only doing this because he's using the power of the devil. It says that uh, he, they were attributing Jesus' power of uh, uh, exercising these demons by using the power of Beelzebul himself, which is a term for Satan or the devil. And this is where Jesus turns the page on the Pharisees and starts talking about kingdoms again. And kingdom is an important word here because Jesus often uses parables when he's talking about the kingdom of God. And here he puts that line in the sand to the Pharisees and gives them one more chance to believe. So if we want to pick it up in chapter 12, verse 25, I'll, I'll have it on the screen. After all of that happens, it says this in verse 25, knowing their thoughts, this is Jesus, knowing their thoughts, and I just want to pause there a second. That should terrify us, right? Jesus, right now, what you're thinking about the shirt I'm wearing or about our church or whatever, everything that you're, Jesus knows what you're thinking. Jesus knows our thoughts. When was the last time we thought about that? When we decide to do things or give in to temptation or pursue avenues we shouldn't pursue Jesus sees everything. He knows our thoughts. And he says to them, 
Every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste, and no city or house divided against itself will stand. And if Satan casts out Satan, he is divided against himself. How then will his kingdom stand? And if I cast out demons by Beelzebul, by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore, they will be your judges. And here's the kicker verse. But if it is by the Spirit of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Or how can someone enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man? Then indeed he may plunder the house. Whoever is not with me, Jesus says, is against me. Whoever does not gather with me scatters. Therefore I tell you, every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven people, but the blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven. And whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven, but whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven, either in this age or the age to come. Back to verse 28 when he says, but if it is by the spirit of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Jesus is giving them one last chance, one final chance to acknowledge that he is who he says he is, that he is indeed the Messiah, that he is the one that they have been waiting for this whole time and yet they reject him. And they don't just reject him, it says that they seek to destroy him, that they conspire against Jesus to try to ultimately get rid of him. And they end up doing that, supposedly, by the Roman system when they brought Jesus to the cross. Now, when Jesus, I can't just gloss over that passage without uh, acknowledging probably one of the most controversial passages in all of Scripture about the unpardonable sin or the unforgivable sin. And what I want to talk about there in regards to the unpardonable sin is that Jesus is using the Pharisees as a case study for this unforgivable sin. If you're sitting in this room as a believer in Jesus and you're worried, oh no, I hope I don't say the wrong thing or do the wrong thing or do something to commit the unpardonable sin, um, don't worry. You haven't as a believer and and you won't as a believer If you're a believer in Jesus, you were bought with a price. You were sealed by the Spirit who brings all things into completion through the word of his power. And when you bow the knee and receive the grace of God through Jesus Christ, taking your place on the cross, knowing that, believing that, being changed by that, when he rose from the dead, he conquered sin and death for you, and his sacrifice then becomes the payment of your sin. And because of that grace, because of that truth, and because of the experienced mercy of God, who would do that for you even though he knows you could do nothing for yourself, he saves you. Your response of that salvation is then gratitude and repenting of your sin and following the Lord and bearing fruit. So when Christ saves you, hear this, he doesn't let go. When Jesus saves you, when the Spirit seals you with his promise, he doesn't let go. And so this unforgivable sin is not something that the believer has to worry about and be like, oh no, I can't say something or I can't do this one thing. Because what you need to understand is what we know to be true in Scripture is that God in in the way that he saves us, even before the foundations of the world, he chose us to be sons and daughters adopted into the family of God. And so when he died, he paid the penalty of our sins, yes, of the past, of the current, and of the future. So as a believer in Jesus Christ, you don't have to worry about the unpardonable sin. Here's what the unpardonable sin is. It's hearing, it's understanding what 
Scripture says about who Jesus is. It's understanding what he did and who he claimed to be. And as the Pharisees as a case study, it's rejecting Jesus as the Messiah. It's rejecting Jesus as Savior and Lord. It's rejecting Jesus as King and God himself. Look at the case of the Pharisees. The Pharisees of all people were in the context of Jesus' ministry, seeing him just even in the latest miracle, healing someone who was blind and mute and knowing the prophecies that say that the Messiah is going to be able to heal the blind. The blind will see, the mute will speak, the dumb the dumb, will, yeah, the dumb will speak, the blind will see, the lame will walk, and they knew those prophecies. They memorized those prophecies, and yet they were still against him. They rejected him. They conspired to kill him. They lost their minds in the process of wanting to make it so Jesus never existed. That rejection, that rejection of the spirit-filled message of Jesus Christ as king and Lord and Savior, that rejection is the unpardonable sin. And what's interesting is more background is that Jesus then goes into a little discourse, a little talk about fruit and fruit-bearing trees and draws the connection of fruitfulness, the enduring fruitfulness of the believer. And he ties it to our hearts. He says, from the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. And what I believe Jesus is doing here is setting the stage for the parables because when he Uh, when he drew drew the line in the sand for the Pharisees, he drew the line in the sand for everyone, in which every case and every parable, he's driving the hearer to examine their hearts. So where's your heart at this morning? Is your heart ripe for truth? Is your heart hardened by the truth because the Pharisees have rejected Jesus? He now ushers in this new kind of teaching, this new way of speaking to the crowds, these parables which allow the message that he's giving to have more power to those who hear and filter out those who have not received a new heart. There's going to be more on that in a moment, but let's get in, let's dive in to Matthew 13, starting in verse 1, the first parable. He says, in that same day, Jesus went out of the house and sat beside the sea, and great crowds gathered about him so that He got into a boat and sat down, and the whole crowd stood on the beach. And he told them many things in parables, saying, A sower went out to sow, and as he sowed, some seed fell along the path, and the birds came and devoured them. Other seeds fell on rocky ground, where they did not have much soil, and immediately they sprang up, since they had no depth of soil. But when the sun rose, they were scorched, and since they had no root, they withered away. Other seeds fell among the thorns, and the thorns grew up and choked them. Other seeds fell on good soil and produced grain, some a hundredfold, some sixty, some thirty. And he says, he who has ears, let him hear. Now, I'm not a farmer. I'm hardly even a gardener. And those in the office usually claim that I have a green thumb because I have all these jade plants in my office that I like to grow. But let me just be clear. Jade plants are easily, probably the most easy plant to keep alive in the history of the plant kingdom. So I guess if you can't keep a jade alive, then you should really seek a different hobby. All that to say you don't need to be a farmer or a gardener or a plant grower, in this case, to understand what Jesus is doing in separating four different types of soils, four different types of mediums that seeds can grow in or not grow in, and he's drawing the connection to those soils being hearers of the word, 
But notice before we get into that, in verse 10, what do the disciples do? So the disciples up until this point were so used to Jesus speaking so plainly and clearly and then he starts speaking in this weird cryptic story type language allegory and it says in verse 10, then the disciples came and said to him, why do you speak to them in parables? It's like they're, they, they, they come up to Jesus like, bro, what are, you, what are, what are we doing right now? What are you, why, are you, why are you doing this? Like, go back to doing miracles. Uh, they like that stuff way better. Look, there's some people leaving. They're looking at us funny. Why are you doing this, Jesus? Verse 11, and he said to them, he answered them, to you it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it has not been given. Now, when it says secrets here, it's talking about, in other translations, it says mysteries of the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of heaven being a uh, life in Christ, both now and for eternity. And those secrets, which were, which were given in the prophecies of who the Messiah is, they now understood the mysteries of what those prophecies were speaking toward and being Jesus himself. And so Jesus says, you've been given those secrets but to them it has not been given. For the one who has, more will be given, and he will have an abundance. But to the one who has not, even, when he, even what he has will be taken away. This is why I speak to them in parable, because seeing they do not see, and hearing they do not hear, nor do they understand. Indeed, in their case, the prophecy of Isaiah is fulfilled that says, you will indeed hear, but never understand, and you will indeed see, but never perceive. For this people's heart has grown dull, and with their ears they can barely hear, and their eyes they have closed, lest they should see with their eyes, and hear with their ears, and understand with their heart, and turn, and I would heal them. But blessed are your eyes, for they see, and your ears, for they hear. For truly I say to you, many prophets and righteous people long to see what you see and did not see it, and to hear what you hear and did not hear it. In that little uh, passage of scripture, Jesus gives the reason for the parables and the allegorical speaking. And as I've researched this in the last couple of weeks, I've found two main reasons in the text of why Jesus chooses now to speak in parables. One, they are memorable illustrations. These are memorable things that uh, compound the intricacies and the value of the truth he's speaking by coupling it with a memorable illustration and in verse 12, it says, for the one who has, more will be given and he will have an abundance. Right before that, Jesus mentions that what that person has is the secrets of the kingdom of heaven, or in other words, eternal life in Christ. And even before that, he says, the only reason why they have it is because it was given to them. Here's what we need to understand. The fact that we even have ears to hear and hearts that are softened to the message of the gospel and understand what God's word says and the fact that we have hearts that would seek the Lord in relationship is only possible if it's been given to us by the Spirit. And when we bow the knee to our Lord, it's accepting a gift from the Lord, recognizing that we didn't make that gift. We couldn't do anything to deserve that gift or create that gift, but instead we humbly accept the gift. And with that gift, Jesus solidifies these timeless truths out of God's word using these memorable illustrations to compound the blessing of the knowledge of Christ and what he's done for us. It's honestly one of the reasons why preachers to this day will use illustrations and analogies in their messages so that hopefully that helps that seed take root in your heart and grow deep roots into the word of God. 
But there's a second reason why Jesus used parables. Jesus spoke in parables as a filter to move along those with stiff necks and hardened hearts. Like the Pharisees, in verse 13 it says, because seeing they do not see and hearing they do not hear nor do they understand. John MacArthur describes this use of parables as in the moment divine judgment against those who met Jesus' teaching with scorn, unbelief, apathy. John MacArthur went on to say this, well, the parables do illustrate and clarify truth for those with ears to hear. They have precisely the opposite effect on those who oppose and reject Christ. The symbolism hides the truth from anyone without the discipline or desire to seek out Christ's meaning. In short, Jesus' parables had a clear twofold purpose. They hid the truth from self-righteous or self-satisfied people who, who fancied themselves too sophisticated to learn from him, while the same parables revealed truth to eager souls with childlike faith, those who were hungering and thirsting for righteousness. To help you uh, gain a little bit more understanding in a very simple phrase from Charles Spurgeon on the reason for the parables, he says, the same sun that melts the wax hardens the clay. The same message that will soften hearts also hardens hearts. And the interesting thing is as deliverers of this message, not just pastors, but you and I in our workplaces, in our families, in any context that we have where we have the ability and the blessing to be able to share God's truth with other people, we are not responsible for how they hear it. But 2 Timothy 4.2 says, preach the word. Be ready in season or out of season. What it doesn't say is that you're responsible for how someone receives that message. It just says, be faithful to give the message. And we see that go in many different ways and complete opposite ways. But what we need to really be encouraged by is that the spirit is the one who has the power in the message. The deliverer is just a messenger. I'm just a messenger. There's no magic in what I say this morning. If there's any movement of any heart or mind or soul in this room, it's not because of me, it's because of the Spirit working through the words that he has graciously given me to speak this morning. Now back to the parable. The disciples were confused. I mean, I would be. If I followed Jesus that whole time and all of a sudden he starts speaking in these weird cryptic type ways. And so Jesus in his grace just graciously gives them a full explanation of the soils. So let's pick it up here in verse 18. He says, hear then the parable of the sower. When anyone hears the word of the kingdom and does not understand it, the evil one comes and snatches away what has been sown in his heart. This is what was sown along the path. As for what was sown on the rocky ground, this is the one who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy, yet he has no root in himself but endures for a while. And when tribulation or persecution arises on the count of the word, immediately he falls away. As for what was sown among the thorns, this is the one who hears the word, but the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches choke the word and it proves unfruitful. As for what was sown on good soil, this is the one who hears the word and understands it. He indeed bears fruit and yields, in one case a hundredfold, and in another sixty, and in another thirty. Jesus starts off by identifying what the soils are, obviously, as different designations of hearers. Okay, the three types of hearers, either the three types of hearers, the first three, they yield zero fruit, whereas the one type of hearer yields fruit. Okay, so 75% of people, no fruit. 25% of people, 
fruit. The sower in this case is Jesus, but the universal truth is that the sower is anyone sharing the word of the kingdom or the good news, the seed, if you will, in this parable, which is either the gospel or God's truth or absolute truth based on, Bib, uh, on the Bible. And he starts with the most grim soil right from the beginning, the wayside here. This is the first soil in Jesus' explanation. The wayside here, these hearers just won't believe. Notice I didn't say can't believe, they won't believe. This is an act of the will. This soil is so hard, it's the pathway. There's not an ability for the seed to germinate or break through. And in fact, the enemy flies in like a bird and snatches it away. This here, this heart, is a heart that is hardened to the truth. It's complete rejection. So deceived by the enemy that they don't know what they don't know. They don't respond with guilt or with repentance or contrition. Rather, they respond with guile and rejection and indifference, impenetrable to the truth, hard-hearted and stiff-necked. And our first assumption as we read that is probably that Jesus is referring to like atheists or people who just don't believe in anything at all. But that's not his context here. That's not the audience that he's preaching to or giving this parable to. And in fact, the audience he's preaching to are two different people. One, it's an agrarian society, so they would appreciate the agricultural illustration, and they would for sure would understand how, what he's at least saying by the elements. But the, uh, the other uh, side of the audience that Jesus is speaking to is the religious elite. It's the Pharisees, it's the scribes, it's the Sadducees. These religious elite have missed the entire message of the scriptures that they have memorized and counted to themselves as their own righteousness. And in turn, the enemy crept in and made them live in a way that they believed that they were their own gods out of their own righteousness, saving themselves. This, that is an affront to the gospel. They completely missed it. They were hard to it. They rejected it. It was an act of the will for them to understand what the prophecies said and even see the evidence of those prophecies in the person of Jesus Christ. And in spite of that clear evidence, they rejected Jesus. And even more than rejecting him, they conspired to kill Jesus and ultimately did send Jesus to the cross. To the wayside here, the truth of the gospel is just theoretical. It's just information. But when push comes to shove, the wayside here is entirely self-focused has no root or sprout and definitely no chance of fruit. They simply won't believe. It's very grim. Second hearer that Jesus points to is the shallow hearer. This hearer just won't take the heat. Won't take the heat. This soil is interesting and honestly, as you hear more about the soil, your heart may be grieved to know many people in your life who you can relate this soil, this heart to. And what's interesting is I was researching this, this rocky soil. What I found is that this isn't referring to like gravel. It's not referring to, uh, you know, even a field that has rocks in it. Any good farmer in Jesus' day would recognize if there's rocks in my soil, I'm going to pick them out, the visible rocks. I'm going to take those out so that these plants have an opportunity to grow and bear fruit. But what it's referring to here is the rocks that are underneath the surface that you can't see. 
oftentimes in, um, in, uh, in Israel, there would be rains that would wash out, uh, that would wash away the soil, but then other soil would come in and it would keep a layer of rocks beneath the surface uh, just a couple inches, maybe even a foot, so that the, on the surface the soil looked great, but under the surface it was not so great. In fact, it created what many people know to be a French drain or a drain tile, so any moisture that would come in would get to those rocks and then drain away very quickly. There'd be no more nutrients in that soil. But the interesting thing is those seeds would sprout. They would grow up quickly. But then as soon as those roots met those rocks, they would dry out as soon as the sun came out. They would shrivel up with no chance to grow fruit. This heart is a heart that responds, maybe even joyfully, maybe even enthusiastically at first. They embrace this message they experience a mountaintop. They even understand the elements of the gospel. Yet, as soon as the sun comes out, the heat and what Jesus says is the persecution and the trials and the tribulations on account of the word. As soon as that happens, they're like, I'm out. I didn't sign up for this. Jesus was supposed to make my life better. And so far, it's only become harder. This isn't working. How could a loving God let me go through what I'm going through? I believed in him and he returns the favor with this? No, I'm, nope, I'm out. These are also the hearts that say things like, you know what, I've tried Jesus before. In fact, I've gone to summer camps. I've gone to the things uh, 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 that Christians go to. I was a Christian, but then I just found out that it wasn't where he wasn't for me. And I respect that you are a Christian. I respect that you still believe that but give it time. To the shallow here, the ultimate question is, what's in this for me? To them, the what is earthly success, earthly treasure, earthly status, earthly pleasure, and ease of life. They don't think with an eternal perspective, and they definitely don't have a view of the Lord as a loving father who disciplines those whom he loves as sons so that they are effective to be able to bear more fruit, being pruned back so that they can bear more fruit. Hebrews 12, three through eight says, consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood and, you have, and, and, and have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. It's the shallow hearer. They don't bear fruit and they waste away. And maybe you have known people in your life like that. And you grieve for those people. But notice, these people won't take the heat. It's not that they can't take the heat. We always need to be in prayer for those in our lives that we know have rejected, maybe even in this moment, but still may be ripe for the gospel in another moment. We don't know the Lord's timing. And so we need to always pray that God soften their hearts, soften their hearts, soften their hearts. Here's the third soil. The worldly hearer, 
These people won't surrender. Now notice, they, it's not that they can't surrender, they won't surrender. This soil is a hard reality as well. The seed here lands on the soil that's riddled with other seeds blown in by the shifting winds of this world. These seeds, and even the little sprouts that are already in the soil, are already of weeds and thorns. The good seeds land among these and is able to grow up quickly, but before it has time to grow deep enough to bear fruit, the weeds and the thorns grow up around it, wrapping around the stalk of these plants and choke it out, and it dies a slow but inevitable death. Have any of you ever been choked out? No one wants to raise it. Really? Okay, wow. A couple people have been actually choked out. I um, was not expecting that. Um, in terms of illustration, I need a, a volunteer. I'm just kidding. I'm not actually going to choke anybody out. But I learned, um, Nate Buchanan is uh, um, on our staff, and we talked about this before. Um, he used to train Marines how to do hand-to-hand -hand combat. And that's a guy you want on your staff and as a close friend. And he described to me um, that there's two ways of choking people out. There's an air choke and there's a blood choke. But either way, notice... Either way, this isn't like a quick thing. Being choked out happens over a gradual amount of time. Like as soon as you're like, you got the headlock on, it's gonna take a little bit, but slowly you're gonna start to black out and you're gonna be, you'll be gone uh, pretty soon after that. But it's not instant, it's over time. And the point is the heart that this soil is describing isn't quickly refusing a relationship with Christ. This person is a person who responds and even sees value in a relationship with Jesus, but at the end of the day, their eyes never seem to stay on Jesus. They're on, their eyes tend to go to other things, and eventually over time, those things choke out whatever semblance of desire that they maybe once had, maybe possibly had for Jesus. Jesus describes exactly what these weeds and thorns are. He says they're the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches. This hearer has a heart that's divided. In short, they want the best of both worlds. But the one is not compatible with the other and eventually they yield to the deceitful nature that is what the world offers in pursuing ease and money and pleasure. The one foot in, one foot out principle, it doesn't work. It doesn't work. Jesus called the believer to take up his cross and follow him implies there's full surrender and lordship. He said earlier in his ministry in regards to the deceitfulness of money in Matthew 6, 24, he says, no one can serve two masters for either he will hate the one and love the other or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. The worldly hearer goes to church as a checklist item the worldly hearer may even be known and respected in the church. However, if the rubber meets the road, if the market crashes, if the job is lost, if their wealth is threatened in any way, it's as if their identity itself is threatened and being robbed from them. Why? It's because they try to serve two masters and the master of money and the deceitfulness of riches is the greater master in their book. Now, don't hear me wrong. It's not wrong to have money. It's not wrong even to have nice things, scripture speaks volumes on investing and providing for your children's children, and the issue is not having money or possessions. The issue becomes when those money and possessions own you. It's a matter of lordship, and if you will bow to the knee to Christ, no matter what financial circumstance you face, the worldly here believes that his wealth makes him secure. 
the deceitfulness of riches is like, if only I can have enough, if only I make enough, if only my portfolio gets to this point, if only, if only, if only, then I will be secure and I won't have to worry about anything anymore, believing that they can just buy their way out of anything. When in a moment, all of it can be taken away. In a moment, despite all odds, everything can be taken away. We have the entire account of Job in scripture to talk about this very thing. And Job wasn't even putting his, uh, his, his heart in his possessions, but we know that in a moment, everything can be taken away. And it's why Job says, he gives and he takes away, but blessed be the name of the Lord. It's not the things that are wrong. It's when those things own you. So do you hold everything with open hands or do you have such a tight grip on things that you think you're the giver of your own life? Along with the deceitfulness of riches, he talks about the cares of this world. This points to control, manipulation, the spinning of things so that you remain the center of everything. If I'm going to give, God, I'm going to give on my terms. If I'm going to be generous, I'll, it will look good to others, but it's not going to hurt. If, it's the uncanny ability for the worldly here to think that they are able to manage everything in their terms. From the obvious worldly things, as I've already mentioned, but also the spiritual things as well. Here's a warning to the worldly hearer. Have you put manipulative terms on what you would call your religion? Jesus, you can have everything else, but I get to keep my porn addiction. Jesus, you can have everything else, but I, will, I get to keep my alcoholism. Jesus, you can have everything else, but I get to keep my anger and I get to keep my whatever it is. Jesus, I'll give I'll give the occasional church attendance, but don't, don't try to make me serve. Jesus, I'll give, but if the market is on a downturn, you'll understand when I press pause, right? Jesus, thank you for dying and all, but I just won't be okay with anything but a life that involves a nice car, a nice house, the perfect spouse, perfect kids. So if you could just do those things for me, we have a deal. These hearers are always in comparison mode. How do I compare to everyone else? How do I look to everyone else? Is my portfolio as good as Warren Buffett's portfolio? Here's the ultimate question of the worldly hearer. Will Jesus be a good accessory to my life? If not, I'm out. It's not that they can't surrender, it's that they won't surrender. Jesus gets a room in the house, but he doesn't own the house. And guess what, there's no fruit. There's no fruit. And no matter how special these hearers think they are, with no fruit means no purpose. And that's a very dangerous place to be. There's three seeds that yield no fruit. It's pretty depressing. I hope there's good news. Please tell me there's good news. It's the fourth soil. The fruitful hearer. These people can't get enough. This soil is the good stuff. This soil has all of the nutrients and the sustenance necessary to allow the seed not to only germinate but to sprout and to root deep and produce a lot of fruit. This soil has been fertilized, plowed, prepared, and primed for a great crop. These hearers, they have a ripe heart for the message of God. These hearers are sitting on the edge of their seat anytime God's word is opened up. These hearers recognize the news of, of grace. They recognize that they can't do anything to deserve grace. They recognize in humility who Jesus is and what he has done for them. The fruitful hearer cannot get enough. 
They can't get enough of God's word. They want more. They want more of God's word. They want more of God's presence. They want more of God's grace in their life. They are firmly rooted in the thick and the thin times of life. They are always longing for more and pursuing their relationship with Jesus Christ is such a joy and pleasure for them no matter what season they're in or trial or hardship or storm that they may be facing. The fruit that the fruitful heart produces is what we find in Galatians 5. It's love, it's joy, it's peace, it's patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. And the longer they walk with Christ, the more like Christ they become. And what's, I love this. What, it's why Jesus uses the analogy of fruit and the illustration of fruit is because when you produce fruit, have you ever opened fruit up? What's inside of fruit? More seeds. More seeds. When that fruit is opened up, when the fruit that you produce is opened up, you're giving more seeds into the world. You're giving more seeds into it. And one of the blessings that we have as followers of Jesus Christ is the fact that he allows us to join in the process of making disciples, join in the process of seeing souls saved for him, join in the process of giving God's word to other people to see and to savor and to understand the greatness of God and how he can change someone from death to life. There is not an investment in the world that can return greater dividends than when Christ calls us to make disciples. And so here's the big question this morning. Again, are you listening? Are you listening? Do you want to be fruitful? It, it has to do with the soil of your heart and if it's being cultivated to grow fruit. And so as I close, I want to try to get real practical. There's four warnings that you're cultivating bad soil. Four warnings, you're cultivating bad soil. Four ways we choose to harden our own hearts toward the Lord. The first thing is hide the rocks. Hide the rocks. You know what they are. You know what these things are. We know the things that we hold on to too close that hinder our ability to grow closer to the Lord. We just want to be, we want those things hidden. We want to keep them hidden so that no one knows about those things. If you want to minimize your ability to bear fruit of any kind, keep hiding. Don't show vulnerability. Don't bring sin into the light. Pretend that everything is okay and that you're not just that. You're just not that bad of a person. Here's the second thing, cultivating bad soil. Prioritize ease. Make your life all about how easy you can make it. How to cut corners for the sake of not doing something hard. Try to make everything as easy as possible. Try to work as little as possible. Numb yourself from things, hide from responsibility, but under no circumstance, deal with the things that need to be dealt with in your life. Here's a third thing. Try to manage and control and manipulate absolutely everything. I need to make sure that I'm right. I need to make sure that people agree with me. If you don't agree with me, you're out. You're not my friend. If I, I don't take no for an answer, and I will finagle anything around to work in my favor. If it's legal, great. If it's not, it's necessary. I must be in control of everything. It's bad soil. It's a hardened heart. Here's the fourth thing. If you want to cultivate bad soil, starve it. Starve your heart. The person who is cultivating bad soil in their heart is a person who has no regard or little regard for God's word. There's no time set aside on a daily basis to hear from the Lord through his word and in prayer. There's no effort put into seeking the Lord in worship. There's no pursuit of nourishment from the Lord. There might be a desire there that you'll tell other people, oh, I need to get in God's word more, but it's usually just to make yourself feel better about knowing that you should, but you really don't want to. 
starve your heart. But here's four ways to cultivate good soil. Four ways to soften our hearts. And these are things that I want to challenge us with this morning. Expose and remove the rock. God's word says the heart is deceitful beyond all things. We have the uncanny ability as humans to hide sin in our lives. And 1 John 1, 9 is a promise that if we confess and expose those sins, bring them to the light, God is faithful and just to forgive us, but also to cleanse us, to heal us. And if you have unconfessed sin that you're harboring in your life, I plead with you this morning, recognize the immeasurable price that Christ paid for you and for that sin. It's paid for and he gives you the power through his promise and through the spirit to cleanse you and to forgive you. And you know, I believe the enemy likes to use embarrassment as a means to keep us in hiding. He likes to use this idea that you're weird or that you're different or that, you're, that, that people are gonna look at you weird if you decide to bring that sin into the light. But here, let me encourage you with this. The reason why the cross is the cross and the reason why we can approach the cross is because we see in scripture that there is nothing new under the sun, that there's not, no one too weird or too broken that can't be healed by the blood of Jesus Christ. No sin has seized you that's not common to man. And so as you approach the cross of, and the throne of grace, you approach that shoulder to shoulder to the next guy who's struggling with something completely different. But notice, you're shoulder to shoulder. There's no sin greater than any other sin. Now, of course, there's worldly consequences that are different. But at the end of the day, when Christ paid for your sin, he paid for it no matter what it is. And the, and the enemy wants to keep you embarrassed of it. But Christ is saying in love and grace, expose it, bring it to the light, and I will heal you, and I will forgive you, and I will, I will overflow my love over you. Here's the second thing. Find joy and purpose in the trials. Four ways to soften your heart. Find joy to, and purpose in the trials. You're not called to live life alone, and often when you wholeheartedly seek and follow the Lord, you will meet opposition. Maybe it's at work. Maybe it's amidst your family dynamic. Maybe it's health-related but whatever that trial may be, God calls us to count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For we know that the testing of our faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect so that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Your purpose in the trial is to glorify God and use it as an opportunity to share your faith to those around you who are seeing what you're going through. Here's a third thing. Trust and release control. You don't need to be in control. And at the end of the day, we're just not very good at controlling things. Joy, peace, and happiness, they happen when we, are, when we fully put our trust in God who is in complete control of everything. He is way more capable of taking care of whatever it is that we feel like we need to have control of. Romans 8, 28 says, all things work together for good of those who love God and are called according to his purpose. And sometimes giving up control means that that thing, whatever it is, might not go in the direction you thought it was going to go. But guess what? That was the better direction because we know that that promise is true. So it's okay. In fact, it's better to let go and to trust the Lord. And here's the fourth thing. Fertilize and water your heart. The soil of your heart is just like your garden or the lawn or whatever it is that you grow. If you, if you don't take the necessary time and the means and the resources to nourish and get in God's word and spend time with the Lord, you'll be starving yourself. And it's amazing the excuses that we give not to do this. We're too busy or we just don't get anything out of it. 
God's word is sim- uh, getting in God's word is as simple as opening it. And reach out to someone who you know, who, who you look up to in their spiritual walk with Christ and ask them where they started. Maybe even ask them if they would be part of your process of getting in God's word. But here, the last thing that I wanna just encourage you with is when I hear lists and I hear things like this and challenges like this, often I get overwhelmed. But can I encourage you with this? God is the farmer. Our Lord is the farmer of our hearts. And if we would yield to him and we would yield to his plowing and his pruning and his cultivating of our hearts, the blessing of following Jesus is beyond anything you've ever experienced. And he calls us to it. And so if you're out there and you're like, I just, I need, I need to know what the next step is, yield your heart to Christ right now. Set your heart on Christ. Allow him to be enthroned on your heart right now. So the question remains, are you listening to the Spirit? Are you listening to the Lord this morning? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this time that we have in your word to see you, to experience you, to uh, grow in you. And Lord, I just pray that you would allow us to be challenged by who you are, be challenged by what you have done for us. Lord, that if we recognize any tendencies toward any of those other soils, that you would give us the power to put those things to death and that we would be able to see our lives bear fruit and faithfulness to you. We ask that we need your help. We need your grace. We need your mercy. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.